I pray that you have loved God objectively. And what I mean by that is you have responded to God based upon the value that Scripture places upon God rather than how you have felt, perhaps, about God. And so the flip side of that coin today is we're going to talk today about loving God subjectively. So I want to put a working definition on that if I can. I want to describe loving God subjectively as loving and responding to God based on something. Now we can easily and should rightly say that I respond to God with my emotions based upon the framework of Scripture. That's crucial because I need something to govern my emotions so that my emotions don't determine my doctrine, but doctrine governs my emotions. Okay, so that, that needs to be stated from the outset. That needs to be applied from the outset, but that's not going to be our emphasis for today. Today, the working definition of loving God subjectively is going to be loving and responding to God with my emotions based on the experience of being loved by God. Now, that might be a little wordy, so let me go back and try to restate that. Loving God subjectively, the definition I'm going to give that is Loving and responding to God with my emotions based on the experience of being loved by God. Okay? Now, John said it this way in 1 John 4.19. We love, the reference being to God. We love God because He first loved us. I wish that I could stand before you today and give you an exhaustive list of things to apply to your life that you could do in order to love God more fully. But we're just not going to be able to do that because that's not how God's love affects us. We respond to God with love because of the fact of how He first addressed us with His love toward us. Now, as most of you know, Napoleon Bonaparte was a very well-known military and political French leader. And he rose to fame during the Revolutionary War. And although he believed that organized religion was very necessary to implement for the order of a social system to contain order, to implement order, and to keep order, he himself was a deist. Now what that means is he believed that God exists, but that God created the universe as well as all other things. And then after God created the universe and all other things, he left his fingerprints on his creation and then God withdrew himself and he is now somewhere far away not to ever be experienced by men. And the only way that we can ever know anything about God is to explore the universe, is to explore nature even lean on our own reasoning and look for those fingerprints that God has left behind. Yet, in the midst of his unbelief, he was able to make a very clear distinction between Jesus Christ and all other men. How? Well, listen to what he said. He states, I know men. And I tell you that Jesus Christ 
is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charmelon, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? And then he answers his own question by saying, upon force, Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Now, deism may say, look to the universe, look to nature, look within your own self and determine and come to the conclusion that God exists. But the Bible points us in several different directions, and the one that we want to highlight right now is the fact that the Bible says, look at God's people. Look at God's people and see how they function in love with the Savior. Look at God's people and see how they function among themselves. Look at how they respond in love vertically toward God. Look at how they respond horizontally in love toward each other. Look at how they respond in the midst of a culture as these people called Christians simply try their best to live out this thing called the Christian life. And I want to tell you, not to say that God has existed, but that He exists right now among us. And beloved, listen, that will not happen from a mere theological study of love. The way that that is going to happen is by us experiencing the reality that we not have been loved by God, but that we are continually being loved by God. I ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew 22, please. <clears throat> Matthew 22. We will look at verses 34 through 40. As we continue on and finish up today the great commandments. <clears throat> Matthew 22, 34 through 40. Which reads like this. <clears throat> but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. God, aware of our sinfulness, aware of our meism, aware that God, you are presenting us with a matter of truth that causes us to reach so far outside of and look so far outside of ourselves. God, you present us with the truth this morning that just demands that we seek you with everything that we have just in order to be able to attempt to live this thing out. 
So Lord, I pray that this morning You would awaken us not to what we can do, but to what we can't do. Awaken us to what You have already done. And may the love, the great love that You have for us be the thing that motivates us to seek to attempt to love You back in return, God. So this morning we come to You with eyes wide open. And that means, Lord, we're dependent on You today. Speak to us. Encourage us. Convict us. Charge us. Challenge us. And God, do it all for Your glory. In these things we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. I do want to pull two principles out of this passage. The first is the inward experience of being loved by God. The inward experience of being loved by God. The second principle is the spiritual capacity to experience being loved by God. So let's go to the first one. Let's try to expound on that for a moment. And let's look at the inward experience of being loved by God. Verse 37. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Our emphasis will be on heart and soul. And when Jesus talks in this passage about the soul, he's making a reference to the center seat of the emotions of a man. When Jesus is talking about the soul, at least in this passage, he's talking about that part of a man that is governed, that governs his affections, that governs his feelings, that governs his desires. That governs his dreams. It's the very word that Christ himself used when he said, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. But it's very important that we identify where exactly those feelings come from. They are not the result of a collision of circumstances that have taken place in my life. And the end result of that collision of circumstances is I am now experiencing emotions that are out of my control. That's not what he's talking about. Because any and all emotional responses, whether they be to each other, whether they be to God, whether they are responses of love, hate, fear, peace, anxiety, joy, sorrow, regardless of what they are, It's important that we identify that they are the result of something that's going on in here and not the result of circumstances that are taking place out there somewhere. This is a great place to enter the heart into this equation because when the Bible talks about the heart, the Bible gives us a very broad meaning of what the heart means, but we can clearly pinpoint it to mean it is the center seat of of the whole man. What does that mean? What does it mean that the heart is the center seat of the whole man? It means that all of our outward activities, all of our outward responses are simply an insight into the reality of what is going on inwardly in relation to the condition of the heart. There's such a close connection between the heart and the soul that there are many passages that even allow these two words to be used interchangeably in Scripture. So the soul, the soul is that that part of man. It's that part of man that is governed by the emotions. 
And we need to know that that part of man is governed by the heart. So anytime that the Bible says your treasure is where your heart is, we need to know something about that. When the Bible says your treasure is where your heart is, we need to know that where the heart is, the soul is also functioning as well. Where your heart is, is where the soul is, and the soul is constantly emotionally responding to what the heart has determined to be its treasure. And that's going to be real important as we're talking about the reality of the sinfulness that defines each one of us. Because listen, beloved, if a man, God forbid, would be unfaithful to his wife, it is not because he had a very brief, weak moment. It's because that's the hunger that was defining his heart at that very moment, which was probably the result of an ongoing process that's defined his heart. If I lash out at you in anger, I don't lash out at you in anger because you've provoked me. I lash out at you in anger because anger has what was, is what has been defining my heart and you've simply produced an opportunity for me to respond based on the condition that has defined my heart for a while. It is so important to realize that outward emotions, outward responses are simply based upon and bring to reality the inward experiences of the heart at the moment. Jesus said it best in Luke 6.45 when he said this. He said a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. And it's important to know that the good things that the good man brings, the evil things that the evil man brings, note that those are simply emotional responses based upon what the heart has suggested is the treasure of this person at the moment. Look, my suggestion this morning is very simple and it's very elementary. We outwardly live, we outwardly respond, we outwardly love based on the inward experiences that are dominating the heart at the moment. So that, that poses a very relevant question for us. Have you, or probably better ask, are you regularly familiar with the inward experience of being loved by God? Are you familiar with the inward experience of being loved by God? Now, it's very important that we isolate the content and meaning of that question because this is what I'm not asking. I'm not asking if you are familiar with the objective truth that states that God loves you. As important as that is. There's going to be times where we're going to need to cling to that truth to help aid us through a tough moment. There's going to be times when we have to cling to that truth to cultivate faith. There's going to be times that we're going to need to preach the gospel to ourselves and remind ourselves of the objective reality that God loves me. But that's not what I'm talking about. You see, when John said in 1 John 4.19 that we love God because... God first loved us. Listen, if the implication or the hope of John's statement rests on the fact that we love God because God said he loved us and we are left without the experience of knowing that God loves us, if we're left without the experience of feeling that God loves us, listen, 
What's the difference between that being a more organized and a more structured form of deism? We wouldn't say that God doesn't exist. But if we believe that we don't need to experience the love of God in our hearts, we have to live as if He has withdrawn Himself from us. And the reason that that is so important is because the only way, beloved, the only way that we will begin to direct love toward God as a conscious way of life is going to be because it's a response based upon the love that we've experienced that He's extended to us. Period. It's going to be going what? Now, there is a reason that I feel complete liberty in my marriage. Now, let me expound on what what I mean by that. There's a reason that I don't walk around in the context of my marriage feeling like I am walking on eggshells in the midst of knowing that I've probably done something really stupid. Knowing that the stage is set for me to have offended my wife. There's a reason that I don't walk around feeling confined in my marriage. There's a, really, there's a reason that I feel the desire, overwhelming desire, to continue to show love and direct love to my wife. And do you know what that chief reason is? The chief reason that I feel that way is because I know for a fact beyond a shadow of a doubt that my wife's love for me is completely unconditional. I do not have to walk around in the context of my marriage feeling like I have to perform a certain way in order to please her, whether I've done something right, whether I've done something wrong. Now listen, that's relevant. There would have been a time in my marriage, especially early on in my marriage, and we've talked about objective truth, subjective feelings, and all of that. There would have been a time in my marriage, early on, When I really would have questioned, do I love this woman? Now, that's not a shocker to her if she was here. We've talked through all of that freely. But there would have been a time early on in my stupidity and in my arrogance when I would have said, you know what? Do I really love her? Do I really love her to the point that I can commit the rest of my life to her? And there's a reality that fire off in my brain I immediately directed my way of thinking. And the reality was this. There will never be another woman that will love me the way that this woman loves me. That gives me freedom to love her. That gives me freedom to function based upon who she is, the reality of who I am, without fear of feeling uh, declined or cast away by her. If you show me a marriage that is strained in any way, I feel very confident, or a relationship that's strained in any way, I feel very confident that I can show you a spouse, one of the two, that feels that they are being loved conditionally. Or that they are being responded to in an indifferent way. When John says we love God because God first loved us, the reality is we cannot love God with the full capacity of our lives unless we are experiencing His love for us. It cannot happen. Now, this may be a hunch, okay? This may be a hunch, 
but I do believe that there could be some legitimacy about this. As I reflect on conversations that I have with different guys, mostly, and even conversations that I have with myself, conversations that revolve around patterns of sin, perhaps, the conversation always seems to go in the same direction. It always seems to go in the direction of, okay, this is what I need to give up. This is the sin that's defining me. Man, I've got to stop this sin. But the conversation rarely ever gravitates to the next tier of, this is what I need to be aiming for. You see, loving God with all of my being, it not only consists of what I need to give up or what I need to stop doing or the sin that I need to stop committing because that's about me. That's about me needing to feel or deal with feelings of guilt and shame that I might be experiencing because of sin. But when I change and transition that idea to this is what I need to be aiming for, now I'm transitioning into sending emotional and just sending, sending love toward the person of God. Let me try to give you a little bit more of an example. I shared with you guys last week that I have been talking to a young man and he's struggling with pornography. And what he said was, listen, I work the evening shift. This is my pattern. I come home, pull over to the side of the road, pull it up on the phone. And there's this overwhelming sense of guilt and shame. And the conversation is always the same. What can I do to stop this behavior? I need to stop committing this sin. What do I need to do to quit behaving this way? It revolves around everything that he needs to give up. But the conversation never gravitated to what it is that he needs to replace that ungodliness with. It never gravitated to the godly traits that need to be developed in order to confront sin. The reality is we're born again. We have the Spirit of God in us. So therefore, we are easily bothered and easily embarrassed by our sin. We're grateful for that. But for the most part, that's about us. And if we're not inwardly experiencing being loved by God, I believe the result of that is we are failing or at least are indifferent in our attempts to grow in godliness. Does that make sense? Let me, let me quote something from Tim Chalice to try to put a little bit more meat onto that fire. This Christian life is one of continually putting off the old man with all of its traits. Now, a lot of us might want to stop right there. Say, okay, I've just got to stop what I'm doing. But he goes on. The Christian life is one of continually putting off the old man with all of its traits and putting on the new man. But our ultimate desire is not to be not sinful, but to be truly godly. We are not to aim at being not sinful, but to aim at being marked by Christian character. We experience the greatest success in battling sin when our desire is not only to stop sinning, but to have our lives marked by the opposite character trait. Let's stop right there for a moment because it's so relevant. See, when it's about me, the process doesn't go far beyond stop sinning. When it becomes about loving God and sending my love and affection in His direction, when it becomes outward, then it transitions into, transition into developing godly traits. Now look at what he goes on to say. 
The thief needs to do more than stop stealing. He needs to learn to be generous. In other words, he needs to direct his love toward God. The porn-addicted young man needs to do more than stop looking at pornography. He needs to learn to love and honor young women as sisters. The angry mom needs to do more than stop lashing out at her children. She needs to learn to display patience and kindness. In each case, the aim is not to stop sinning because I can have the desire to stop sinning and that desire be all about me. The aim is to display Christ-like character, to work from the inside outwardly and project a love toward the person of God. But how do I do that? It's so easily said. I got that. I realize that here. How do we transition it from here to here? Well, let's look at our next principle, which is the spiritual capacity to experience being loved by God. Let's look at verse 36 through 38. Again, please. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So I want to just throw out three quick ideas that can maybe complement the idea of us loving God or responding to God subjectively. The first is realizing that I can't love God on my own strength. Simply realizing I cannot love God on my own strength. What is it that Jesus tells us about this commandment in verse 38? What does he say about it? Two words, two descriptive words. What are they? Great and first. He says that this commandment is great and that this commandment is first. Listen, I'm already overwhelmed with some things. I'm already overwhelmed with the reality of my sinfulness. I'm already overwhelmed with the reality that the DNA of sin is selfishness and I am the chief of sinners in that regard because life is all about me. So I am already overwhelmed with the fact that life is all about me. And here God is confronting me, telling me that life can't be all about me, that life has to be all about Him. So I'm overwhelmed with the fact that I'm a sinner right off the bat. Next, I'm overwhelmed with the reality... That what God is calling me to do, look, I, I have problems at times directing the necessary and right love to the people that are real and tangible, that I can touch, that I can dialogue with, like my wife and my children and my grandchildren. I have a hard enough time delegating the right love to them the way that God would expect me to do that. And now God's adding to my burden by saying, life can't be about you, life can't be about them, life has to always and at all times be about me. Look, I am confronted with the reality, I cannot do this. I cannot love God. I cannot love God fully. And just to be quite frank, there are times I don't feel that I can love Him partially. But the good news of the gospel, because it is good news, it's not mediocre news. The good news of the gospel is that we're liberated from the need to perform. We're liberated from the desire or the need to earn God's favor or to earn God's merit by what we do. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, and let's look at how Paul presents this good news. Romans chapter 5. I can't love God on my own strength. Romans chapter 5. And we're going to look at verses 4 through 8. 
Let's look at verses 5 through 8. Romans 5, 5 through 8. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Okay? So we're immediately thrown out of this camp of we could, we could possibly be good persons. Okay? But Paul has just obliterated that idea. And he goes on to say in verse 8, But God shows His love for us in that, not when we're good persons, but in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I think it's very important to note that the first step that Paul takes is to bring to the reality that we're not talking about a logical series of events that have taken place that cause us to love God. Something has been done to us. We do not have it in us because we are good people or we come from a good stock or we have a good background or there's anything good at us in all. Something has been done to us in the, midst of our, in the midst of our sinfulness, it's been done to us through the Spirit of God, and it continues to take place through the Spirit of God. He, the Holy Spirit, who continues to this day to mediate the gospel on our behalf in the presence of the Holy God. Listen, can you love God more fully for that? Now, the second thing I want to throw out. First, we realize that I can't love God on my own strength. Secondly, we need to realize that God has given us His Spirit that we could experience being loved by God. It seems like Paul, we see Paul continuing to encourage the churches on what they are to do, which is to act out in love. But it seems as if the greatest counsel that Paul can give the churches is to point them to what the Spirit of God has already done by first pouring out His love into our hearts, and secondly, by continuing to mediate love in the midst of our sinfulness. John Owen said, The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay upon the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is not to believe that He loves you. And the reality is, I am so sinful for the most part, I have a hard time believing that somebody could love me more than I love myself. But God deals with that. God deals with that and encourages us in this journey of learning how to love Him by He Himself taking on the work. He Himself taking on the work of pouring His love into us. Listen, pouring out, listen, this isn't a matter of renewed, recycled love that God's recycling within me that I had. This is God pouring out His very love in our lives. The love that we need to respond to others and the love that we need to respond to God. God in no way is saying, okay, I want you to develop the love that you need to love me. He takes it a step further and says, I'm going to give you the love that you need to love me by pouring out my own love in your heart. And then he takes us to the cross so that we continually see the ongoing revelation that God loves us. Sam Storm says, loving God requires a loving God. 
We will be passionate for Him only so far as He is passionate for us. He must take the initiative. He must reveal the depths and extent of His commitment to us and the delight in His heart for broken people like us. Now listen, the Holy Spirit has to do this. And only then will our slumbering and self-centered souls be aroused to seek Him with all of our hearts and relish the revelation of Himself in the person of His Son, the man Jesus Christ. Now, how do we continue to go through this process? Third idea I want to throw out. A backward look at the cross, which highlights my sinfulness. It's the third idea that I believe can complete these series of ideas and how we can at least work toward and work with God in learning to love Him with our emotion. A backward look at the cross, which highlights my sinfulness. See, it's kind of like that principle, the more I see myself as a sinner, the more awakened I am to grace. Listen to what Piper says. <clears throat> he said, if I do not believe in my heart, my awful predicament before Christ. Believe them so that they are real in my feelings. Then the blessed love of God in Christ will scarcely shine at all. The sweetness of the air of redemption will be hardly detectable. The infinite marvel of my new life will be commonplace. The wonder that to me, a child of hell, all things are given for an inheritance will not strike me speechless with trembling, humility, and lowly gratitude. The whole affair of salvation will seem ho-hum. And my entrance into paradise will seem as a matter of course. When the heart no longer feels the truth of hell, the gospel passes from good news to simply news. And the way that God, see God has a remedy even for that. And the remedy Paul highlights in verse 8 of Romans 5. The remedy that God has established is taking the objective truth of the past. Because verse 8 says Christ died for us. Christ accomplished this. He has done it. It's past tense. He has died for us. So Paul is calling us to engage our minds with that reality right now. Engage your mind, engage your heart, all of your being as the whole person to the objective reality Christ died for you. What's the result of that? Well, the result of that is found in the first part of verse 8. God, God says engage with that objective truth that Christ died for you and the result is you're going to experience the present tense of being loved. Because verse 8 does not say God showed His love. Now look to the cross. Verse 8 says God is showing present. He shows His love. How? Look to what Christ already did. Engage your mind. Engage your faculties with all that Christ already did. And know that although that happened 2,000 years ago, it's because of that that God is currently present tense showing His love to you. Right now. As we look at the cross. <clears throat> and we say, okay, man, what do we do with this? I get it. I get it. 
not a magic formula, not a list of things that I can just go home and begin to do. What I do with the reality of this in the midst of my sinfulness? Well, let me encourage you what John Edwards did in resolution number 25. When he said, resolved, okay, it's done, it's settled. That might be a good way for us to end our time here, to make a to make a resolution to resolve the matter right now. He says, resolved. To examine carefully and constantly what that one thing in me is which causes me in the least to doubt of the love of God and to direct all of my forces against it. So what is that thing that may be standing in the way as a roadblock between you experiencing the love of God? Because the reality is we can talk about the sin that defines us at the moment, but I want you to know that loving God is like any other relationship, and it consists of thousands of moments on a daily basis. We were not born again, placed in... We were, we were born again, placed in a right relationship with God. But listen, I want to tell you now, the pursuit of learning to love God is going to consist of 10,000 little moments on a daily basis where we're working to get our hearts right and strive to give ourselves to God. It's not just an instantaneous thing. Our justification is, for sure. But being conformed to the image of Christ, 10,000 instant moments. Continuous moments, continuous thought, continuous work, continual reminder, continual preaching the gospel to myself. This moment, it's like it's like a marriage relationship. If it's going to be fruitful, I want to ask you if you would to bow your head with me, and let's let me read something to you by Scott Haifman, who said this. Is the cross of Christ enough? Scott Hafen said, God did not demand that we first demonstrate our allegiance to Him before Christ would agree to die in our place. To demand that we somehow show ourselves deserving of forgiveness in order to regain our status as His children would have been futile. What can ungodly, rebellious sinners offer God that would move the holy creator of the universe to sacrifice his only son on their behalf? Rhetorical question, the answer is nothing. So God acted first, motivated solely by his own sovereign love, to grant mercy to his people as the ultimate expression of his grace. Christ died for us because the Father and the Son loved the unlovable. Is that enough to cause us to love God a little more fully? It can be. 
It can be. If we take Paul's counsel and go back and continue to preach the reality of the gospel to ourselves, that Christ died for us in a sinful state and allow that reality to meet us where we are right now in the presence. But listen, beloved, it will take place for those 10,000 moments throughout this day when we have to remind ourselves of that. Can you love God more fully because of the cross? Can you love God more fully? As you look at the Son of God on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God that was deserving of us, that we deserve, that He didn't deserve. Can you love God more fully because of the cross? Can you love God more fully because God first loved you? In the sinful state that you were in. Can you love God more fully simply because of the reality of the gospel? Can you do that? So what we do this morning is we reflect on the reality that we're here. We're born again. We're Christians. We can, we can meet God at that place where we confess what the Holy Spirit has already done. Now... Acts 1.8 tells us, as it reflects on the apostles of the early church, it says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses. And then God begins to send them out. You know, a lot of times we look at that passage of Scripture, because the Holy Spirit is definitely a spirit of power, but a lot of times we look at that passage of Scripture and we want to talk about how God's going to empower us for ministry. Oh, God... I need power to do this great thing for you. And I want to tell you right now, beloved, the main thing and the main ministry of the Holy Spirit of God is not to equip us for a grand ministry. The main and and chief ministry of the Holy Spirit is to pour out the love of God in our hearts that we would be defined by a love directed toward God. That's the first and foremost and chief ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if we're seeking something else from the Holy Spirit other than being defined by the love of God and directing love toward God, we we are completely missing the role and the purpose of the Holy Spirit. So we cry out to God today, Lord, fulfill your ministry. No, I'm not asking that you would equip me to do this great thing for you, to build this grand church, to bring in mass numbers, to go to the nations. You'll do that as an overflow of me being defined by loving you and directing love toward you. You do that work in me first, God, and then the overflow, it'll go where it will. And God, when you say go, I go. When you say speak, I speak. When you say sit still, I sit still. God, I respond first and foremost as you fill me with your love. It's that simple. God doesn't need me. I realize that point out in life. God does not need me. God does not need you. This is not about me loving God. This is all about God first loving us. So, Father, we come to you this day. And we ask, as humbly as we can, as honestly as we can, we, we, in the midst of the reality of our sinful state, God, God help us. Fill us with your spirit. So that we would just love each other. 
so that we would love you. And God, I'm so sorry for those times that I have begged and pleaded with you to do this great thing through my life. Instead of coming to you and asking, God, just put me to work. God, just change my heart. God, just bring the gospel to life. It's a light. Everywhere I look, when I look at my wife and my children, church, I see, I see your love poured out in my life. Every time I inhale and exhale, allow me to see your love poured out. Every time I sit down and eat a meal, there's little things that I have a tendency to take for granted, God. Come on over to the So help us to see the ties wide open in every moment. God, is just simply you pouring out your love upon us. So, Father, fill us with your spirit because way before you are a spirit of power and ministry, God, you're a spirit of love. Paul says, without wealth, I am nothing. Regardless of what I accomplish, without first being defined by love, I am nothing. And God, without that, we have nothing to give. Equip us, enable us, empower us to be about the greatest commandment, loving you with everything. Pray, amen. Ask if you would stand and let's just respond to the Lord. Let's worship Him for His love pour out upon us. If you want to pray, we can pray. If you want to talk, we can do that as well. But let's just chiefly respond to the love of God.